A very good morning to each and every one of you here on this beautiful Sunday morning. I'm so glad that you've joined us on www.godsredeemed.org and also those of you who have joined us on Facebook this morning. It is so wonderful to be able to present uh, this lesson this quarter on a survey of the book of 1 Corinthians. It is an important book, and uh, I appreciate the elders allowing me to teach this subject. We are the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ, and we're located at 2091 Pitts Lane here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and join us. Scroll down on the home page, and you'll find uh, ways that you can worship with us inside the building or in the parking lot if you're not comfortable going in uh, with your mask, you may uh, stay in the parking lot and listen to us on FM 99.9. Uh, .9. And you can always listen to our sermons here uh, on the website. We're studying uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue our study and get right in with our first lesson on the first problem that Paul addresses, factionalism. This problem is addressed from chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul uh, places many warnings, uh, just as Jesus placed warnings on churches that had deviated from the pattern, churches that had gone astray in Revelation 2 and 3. But I think it's important, before we begin, uh, to have a little review of what we studied last week uh, as way of introduction uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians. How did Paul get there? And how did he found the church? Well, we said that he began his second missionary journey in Jerusalem and went throughout uh, Asia Minor, or Turkey as we call it today, and went on to uh, Greece. And he passed through many cities that we are well familiar with. Lystra, Derby, Antioch, Troas, Neapolis, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and comes on down to Athens. And Athens, he makes, in Athens rather, he makes his uh, wonderful sermon uh, on Mars Hill concerning the true and living God. And following that, he goes across the Isthmus of Corinth, which it's called, across the canal that uh, has been dug there by Nero. And he comes to Corinth. And because of this canal that had been uh, dug through the Isthmus, uh, there was a, it was a seagoing town. It was a wealthy town uh, based on the uh, trade that went on there. Uh, it was a city of free uh, Roman uh, citizens. They had been freed from their slavery, either by their acts uh, uh, or their noble deeds, or because their time was up, or the generosity of their masters. And so uh, when we look at this city, uh, we noted that perhaps their freedom had caused them to expand their lusts into various ways, particularly with idolatry and the worship of mythological beings, uh, which brought in sexual immorality and other types of uh, worldliness. Uh, but Paul came there, and while he was there, he wrote uh, to the church in Rome, 
And in the first chapter of that letter, uh, we pondered whether or not in this passage he was talking about uh, those who surrounded him there at Corinth. He talks about a people who were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. Their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, and inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, heartless and ruthless. They were not a kind people. And they were a people who loved the world. But Paul stayed there, uh, we said, for a year and six months, noted in Acts the 18th chapter and verse 11. He stayed there preaching and teaching the word of God to them. He established the church, he says, in uh, the third chapter of 1 Corinthians in verse 10, like a skilled master builder. He laid the foundation, the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. And someone else is building on it, certainly someone who does not know how to build, someone who is using uh, inferior material, someone who is using uh, improper techniques. And he closes with this warning, let each one care how he builds upon it. And so as he reminds them of who built that church, and how much he loves them, he begins to uh, warn them about the path which they're going, and that is in division. We look at the greetings there in verses 1 through 3, and Paul uh, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, to be called saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at the introduction to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, it follows the format of ancient letters. The person writing the letter, to whom it is written, and uh, greetings of peace and grace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. It follows in line with other letters that were written during that time. Uh, the letter was from Paul and Sosthenes. Now, who is Sosthenes? I can't say for sure. There is a Sosthenes mentioned in Acts, the 18th chapter, in verse 17. He was the chief ruler of the synagogue, you may remember. He was beaten before the judgment seat of Gallio. So if this is the same Sosthenes, uh, there was a great conversion that had to have taken place. But the name was a common one. So the Sosthenes mentioned here may or may not be the same one in Acts 18. Paul addresses the uh, letter to the church of God. And the church is called by a number of names. The Church of Christ in Romans 16, 16, the Kingdom of God in Matthew 13, as Jesus prepares mankind to be able to understand the Kingdom of God and who makes it up. We're studying that in another class on Sunday morning as he preaches the greatest sermon ever preached. 
And then it's called the body of Christ in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, and the house of God in 1 Timothy. So they all mean the same thing. They all are the church of God. They are the church of Christ, and they are the body of Christ because it was bought by his blood. Listen to Acts 20 and verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, if we look at church of God, uh, God is there. Well, who is God? Well, Jesus is God, God the Son. God is God, God the Father. The Spirit is God, God the Spirit, all three of the Godhead. But God obtained this with his own blood. Which of the Godhead shed his blood for us? Well, that was Jesus Christ. So we have this wonderful uh, encouragement here to pay to the elders, to pay attention. Uh, because the church was bought with a heavy price, just as our salvation was, the blood of Jesus Christ. The church is composed of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're living people. They're not uh, people who've been dead for hundreds of years and people try to find uh, evidence of some miracle or thing that they have done, as, as some do, and call them uh, saints and venerate them. Uh, it's not true. Saints are those who are have been baptized into Christ, have put him on, and who follow the commandments of Jesus Christ. In Acts 2 and verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, in Romans 10 and verse 12, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now, don't be deceived. The calling on God is not uh, the sinner's prayer. It's not simply uh, calling on his name and uh, making him your personal uh, savior. It is reading the word and believing and living that in your life. Paul sends grace and peace to the Corinthians, and it reminds us of the usual greetings in Greek of charis, from which we get the word charismatic, and also shalom in Hebrew, as those who are claiming to be uh, Jewish today will, uh, on greeting, say shalom to each other, or in Israel, if you've been there, uh, that's the common greeting. So from verses 4 through 9, Paul gives thanksgiving, but this thanksgiving is not necessarily what we think that he's thanking them for. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that, of God that was given you in Jesus Christ, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, and that even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. They weren't lacking for any of the tools they needed to grow as a church. They were not lacking in any of the spiritual gifts uh, that had bestowed upon them uh, to use to confirm uh, the truth to those in Corinth and beyond. He expresses his thanks 
But the things for which he's thankful for ought to be noted by us very carefully. He doesn't thank God for their moral growth and development because that hadn't taken place. Didn't thank them for their good works or other virtues that uh, they may have attained in Christ. But rather, he's thankful for God's gifts to the Corinthians. They'd been richly blessed with being able to speak in tongues, being able to have knowledge and prophesy and miraculous spiritual gifts, which were given uh, to them to confirm uh, the gospel of Christ. They didn't lack anything. And Jesus said in Mark 16 and verses 17 through 20 about these gifts that would be given to confirm, uh, to increase their belief in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. Uh, they would drink poison and it wouldn't hurt them. They lay their hands on the sick and they'll recover. And so uh, then Jesus, after he spoke to them, uh, was taken up into heaven and he uh, sat down at the right hand of God. And as he did that, uh, these uh, disciples and apostles went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message that was accompanying these signs. And so they were in full possession of the gifts that they were to await the coming of the Lord. They were to be working until the Lord came. And so the coming of the Lord is the Christian's hope. On that day, uh, the Christian will be found blameless because of the grace given to him and hopefully us in Jesus Christ. Well, the problem of factions uh, is one that's easy to understand, and he addresses it here in the first chapter, verses 10 uh, through chapter 4, verse 21. He appeals uh, to them. And the problem, as it's described, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. They didn't agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And he tells of the report that he had been given by Chloe's people uh, as he was in Ephesus, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is, and he goes on to talk about the various preachers. Uh, some were following Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And I follow Christ. And he asked this question that we all need to ask based on what we see in the world today. Many divisions, many factions, many variances in the gospel and in the pattern. This is the question, series of questions. Is Christ divided? One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism? I don't think so. Was Paul crucified for you? No. So why are you clinging to him as being your salvation? Or he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God, he says, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in their name. And we do that sometimes. We cling to preachers and we praise them because they baptized us. We remember that day, and we should, and we should remember everyone who brought us to repentance and to salvation. I can sit and quote many men and women 
who taught me uh, from my youth on up until uh, even today. There are those who still encourage and provide uh, wonderful things to think about uh, in the way of the cross, and we need that. But when you go so far as to say, well, uh, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Apollo, or I like so-and-so, we're putting the word behind us, and we're not looking at the content of what they preached to us. We're looking at the man, which is what they were doing. And so they were following other uh, people rather than knowing what they taught. Their division is attributed to carnality in chapter 3 and verse 3. And in chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul says they're thinking too highly of men. And we can do that. We put a lot on preachers. And we like the way they speak. And we like their eloquence. I can name you preachers who are very eloquent. And I love to hear them speak. Uh, it's not because of their eloquence and simplicity. It's because of what the content of their lesson is. And Paul is telling them that's what they were guilty of, looking at the eloquence, looking at the things uh, that were physical rather than the content and spiritual. But he also mentions the results that this uh, faction or this division was having on others. Brothers were taking each other to law. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. They were suing each other and going to court. Brethren were divided over eating meals, sacrificed to idols. They were divided over Christ. And to correct the problem, Paul had to show them. The brethren were separated along class lines when it came to eating a meal in association with the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 and verse 21. Confusion reigned over spiritual gifts, and it was a confusion uh, that Paul said, if someone came into your midst to worship God, they would open the doors and come in and think they were in a madhouse. That's the loony bin for some of you, but... You think you're in a madhouse. Everything uh, happening, someone singing over here and someone praying over there, someone speaking in some kind of tongue that no one understood. And so confusion reigned throughout the church. The explanation that best explains the situation in Corinth is to understand that the Corinthian Christians looked upon their preachers in the same light as the philosophers. And you remember Greek philosophy and Greek orators were known for being able to speak in such a way that they could make one cry and weep, it was said, uh, in the same uh, moment. They had a wonderful mastery of eloquence and could bring people up and down throughout their uh, lessons. But it was based on language. It was based on presentation. It was based on a boldness, but not necessarily on content, not necessarily on truth. And so their allegiance uh, had become one in which they dwelt on the physical rather than what the preacher was preaching. And as a result, uh, nothing had been getting done except deviating from the pattern, uh, losing their love, uh, 
losing their faith. And so Paul had to show them the difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom. He told them uh, back in chapter 2 and verse 16 that everybody has to agree and have the same mind. And I think he's referring there to the mind of Christ. If everybody agrees to abide in the revelation of God, they can reach the same judgment. We said in a lesson before, many weeks ago, the Bible doesn't conflict with itself. It doesn't have conflicting doctrines or patterns or commandments. And they were told to speak the same thing. He doesn't make an appeal to, well, you know, everybody's got their own thing. Let them do it. Uh, he doesn't say, uh, you know, there's unity and diversity. What he says uh, is we can no more think alike that we can, or he doesn't say we can no more uh, think alike than we can look alike. But he appeals for them to be one. And to emphasize the sinfulness of their division, Paul replies that one should call himself after the name of the one who's been crucified for them the one whose name you were baptized into. We have put on Christ, not some preacher's garment, not some uh, preacher's following. We have put on Christ. And Paul basically said division is not to be tolerated. Division is sinful. It destroys a congregation. It destroys the church. It destroys the light in a church. So division is not to be tolerated by any means. Because of the faction some were uh, forming around his name, Paul uh, said, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you but two, Crispus and Gaius, and the household of Stephanus. There in the first chapter, verse 14 through 16. He said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And that's what he was doing. That's what all preachers should be doing. The gospel is the wisdom of God. In the first chapter, verses 18, through the second chapter in verse 16, uh, the gospel's message is contrary to the wisdom of men. It's not like the wisdom of God, the wisdom that we have. God's ways are not like ours. And so Paul begins an extended argument to demonstrate the difference between the wisdom of men and the revealed will of God. The gospel's message is contrary to our wisdom or the wisdom of any man on this earth. You look at its appeal to the common man. It shows it's not human philosophy. Chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. The manner in which the gospel is preached shows that it's not a human philosophy. As Paul said in chapter 2, uh, down from verses 1 through 5, he said, Brothers, when I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God, I didn't speak to you with this uh, great lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't stand out uh, as if you were to be focused on me. Uh, for I decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I wanted to teach. And Paul often said he didn't uh, preach very well. He didn't preach like those orators that men wanted to hear and tickle their ears and stand back in awe at their mastery of the Greek language. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message 
were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith not, may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel is the wisdom of God. And so the world doesn't understand God because it's still worldly. It's only those who read and study and come uh, to understand and come to know uh, that will be able to understand the wisdom of God. Paul said uh, in the second chapter, verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. We can't understand the mind of God, so God revealed his mind and his will and his pattern and his commandments through the Holy Spirit, through inspired men. Uh, it was decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, he says, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. But as it is written, he said, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And God revealed those things to us through his spirit, as he said. He also, as he finishes that, say, we impart this in words not taught, talking about the gospel, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so in order to understand God's will and to please God, and to do his will, we have to become spiritual. They had not done that. The gospel message is contrary to the wisdom of men, as it's noted back in the first chapter, talking about uh, the word of the cross being folly to those who are perishing. But to those uh, who are being saved, it shows the great power of God. And he says, further, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Thwart. So he asks in verse 20, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where are those who should, uh, the scribes transferred and copied uh, the scriptures? They should know. The ones who were wise, their leaders uh, in the spiritual realm should have known. But he says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For all these people, the Jews demand signs, the Greek, uh, they seek wisdom. But we preach Jesus Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And to those who are enamored uh, with this world, uh, that holds a great pull rather than believe that this man Jesus was the Son of God, that he died in the flesh, and Christ or, and God uh, raised him up from that, that he may uh, be raised in victory. And because of that, he provides our salvation. He provides our forgiveness when we uh, sin in our weaknesses. It doesn't give the carnal man any pleasure. And so it becomes folly. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power. In Isaiah, Jesus talked about this power. Uh, Isaiah, the 29th chapter and verse 14, he says, Behold, I will do wonderful things with this people. 
with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. Their discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden, just as noted here. So we have to understand that uh, God formed his words and revealed them to us in the scripture that we have today. We have the mind of God as it pertains to salvation, as it pertains to all things that we need to know. Paul says God's ways are superior to ours. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? God so ordered things that man could know him through the human wisdom of being able to read, to understand, to discern what is true, and to obey it. Man cannot learn of God by human searching. He's dependent, and we are dependent upon those things that God has revealed to us. And so therefore, uh, he says, it pleased God to save men through the foolishness of preaching. And that foolishness of preaching is not the act of preaching, not standing in a pulpit with a nice uh, expensive suit and polished hair and, and a shining face, but it's to preach the gospel with content, preaching the truth, teaching with boldness and confidence the word of God. And so Paul encourages us to look past our preacher who may have a good command of the English language, but be as the Bereans and search the scripture as to what he is telling us. What he is reading to us is actually true. From man's point of view, yes, that's foolish. But to those who believe this message of God's grace, the gospel is the wisdom and power of God. And so the gospel's appeal to common man shows us that it is not uh, human philosophy. It appeals to those who are weak, those who are base, those who are despised. And the things which are not God has chosen these things to confuse the wise and those of uh, upper class, so to speak. Jesus is our wisdom, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so as we continue on, uh, the manner of Paul's preaching shows that uh, this is not a wisdom of men. When Paul preached in Corinth, he says, I didn't come with excellency of speech or of wisdom. He declared the testimony of God. And what was that? Paul was determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message of the gospel. And that's what he came to preach. He didn't come to preach any sort of uh, worthy tale or story that would uh, cause his audience to ooh and to ah. It was something meant to wake them up. It was something meant to uh, encourage them in their desire to find the truth and be obedient. A Jewish audience may have wanted a Christ who was a conquering monarch, who was like Saul. He looked like a king, he was tall, but when it came to having the heart needed uh, to be the king appointed by God, he didn't have it. There was nothing in the preaching of Paul or the preaching of Christ that appealed to any sort of earthly pride. Paul was weak, he said. He came in fear and trembling. And you remember 
back in Acts 18 and verse 9, that God gave Paul a vision to reassure him of his goal and his mission. There wasn't anything about Paul that appealed to human pride or those who were desiring to see a preacher uh, who spoke eloquently and looked the part. And so the power of the message is in its uh, saving grace. God revealed his wisdom. Man couldn't know it. Where's the power? The power of the message is its saving power. Again, back to Romans 1 and verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believe it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul chose this manner of preaching so that man's faith would stand in the power of God. The gospel is God's wisdom. Noted in the second chapter again, 6 through 16, the world doesn't know this wisdom. This wisdom is not of the world. It doesn't have a human origin. If the gospel was a part of any changing scene, if it was just a fad, its appeal would have been limited to a given time and place, don't you think? Don't you think that if there was nothing to Jesus, and there were many who came uh, saying they were Jesus, there were about 300 historians, right, or more, uh, at the time Jesus came in the flesh, who said they were the Messiah. Do you remember any of their names? Are they around today? Is their teaching available uh, for us to look at? No. If the gospel were just a passing thing, here in 2020, Jesus Christ would not be being taught. I would not be here on this uh, avenue preaching the word to you and studying uh, the lesson with you. It's divine origin. It is a mystery. Uh, mystery, as we begin to close, uh, means a hidden purpose or a counsel. It's a secret will. In the New Testament plan of providing salvation for men in Christ, it was once hidden, but now it has been revealed. It's been revealed by Jesus. It's been revealed by the apostles and all since then who have taught the truth. Once this mystery was understood, it wasn't so in uh, the days of uh, the Old Testament. But as it was revealed, uh, we were able to understand it. And this mystery was ordained before the world and foreordained uh, will of God. It's for our glory. Its object is to bring many sons to glory. For it was fitting that he, in Hebrews 10 and uh, 2 and verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Could anyone, Apollos or Paul or Cephas, claim that? No. And so the glory of the Lord is a description of Jesus in terms used to describe deity in the later writings of Judaism. It's not referring to the glories of heaven. It's, uh, it's talking about the confirmation of the gospel. And God has revealed 
these mysteries, or this mystery, unto us. As he says in the second chapter, verses 10 through 13, God revealed his wisdom. What man could know without divine guidance, God revealed. He revealed it to us, the apostles and prophet. He revealed them by his spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the spirit is well qualified, uh, being with God and one with God, to know God's mind. We couldn't know unless it had been revealed. And so then by the Holy Spirit's revelation, because he revealed the will of God to man, we've received the spirit which is from God and not of this world. The prophets spoke and they wrote, not in uh, words which man would teach, uh, but that which the Holy Ghost teaches. And so in uh, chapter 14 and verse 37, talking about their uh, spiritual gifts. He says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge, acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in verse 13 and said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is. And what is it really? the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so the natural man, who is the man who considers the gospel foolish, he's the one that doesn't and cannot accept uh, the gospel as God's revelation because he doesn't accept that the gospel is the wisdom of God. He thinks it's foolishness and he thinks uh, it's a fairy tale. He can't know them because his thoughts can't be uh, commend uh, comprehended, rather. Excuse me, I'll get it right in a minute. But he rejects them as the will of God. But the one who accepts the gospel can judge all things, having the word of God as his standard. And that's what we need to have. The word of God needs to be written on our hearts. It needs to be our daily guide. It needs to be our confidence. And so we need to understand that man cannot preach uh, without preaching the gospel, the truth, the revealed mind of God. And so when we're enamored with the preacher because of his family background, because of where he attended college, because of what kind of clothes he wears, because of the car he drives, because of his eloquence in the pulpit, because of, he always greets uh, everyone before uh, the service. We need to understand that a preacher, and we're going to talk more about the role of the preacher next week, God willing, the preacher has a great responsibility to ensure that what he preaches and what he teaches is according to God's word, and he needs to back it up with the scripture and he needs to protect and defend the truth. That's our class for today. I hope you'll uh, join us next week. We'll get into the second part, uh, remembering that when you receive the word of God, it was the word of God. We need to do that too. What we're studying is the word of God and how to protect his church. And so next week, we'll continue this idea in chapters three and four uh, with Paul's 
uh, warning to them and Paul's admonishment to them about factionalism. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope to see you again next week. Goodbye, and may God bless each of you.